thing to understand about banking is that the digital versus physical, that all we're talking about is distribution. That's all we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you go back to like distribution has always been evolving. We had like a bank that just like put up like some flag, like some like clapboard because the train station was going to be put there. We need like a stagecoach. Then you have Wells Fargo. We're going to have cars now. Let's knock a hole out in the wall and then we'll give the stuff out that hole. Welcome to FinTech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Hello and welcome to Accrued, the FinTech Confidential series proudly supported by LoanPro. I'm your host, Ted Hoff, and I'm here to guide you through this intricate world of Lend Tech, focusing on the pivotal role of lending. This series is all about unpacking the complexities of LendTech, breaking it down into plain English, and providing you with insights directly from decision makers and innovators shaping this market. Joining me on this journey is Colton Pond, our co-host, who brings a wealth of knowledge and insight into the LendTech space. Together, we'll be engaging conversations that matter with people who are at the forefront of this evolving industry. Colton, thanks for being here, man. Ted, it's good to see you again, man. I'm excited for this one. This is the the episode that I've been most looking forward to. So excited for this. Well, you're right. I mean, today I'm I'm especially excited to welcome John Maxfield. Uh, this he has a brilliant mind, and and I've been reading the Maxfield on Banks posts, and and really it's it's taught me a lot of things that I didn't realize as I got went back further and further. And I'm, I'm really excited to have him talk about the banking sector's history, the strategies, some of the future directions, the, the perspectives that a lot of people may not think about coming from it. So I'm excited to have him on. You, you know John better than I do. So I want you to do like this really cool, quick introduction for John uh, so that, that he feels comfortable hopping in on us today. John, I'm watching Colton. Him. I'm watching. Yeah, you grew watching. I've been doing lots of these intros of you recently. You're the best. You're the best. That's talking to folks. So when I introduce John, I introduce him as the ultimate banking historian. There is no one that knows more about banking than John Maxfield. Um, In fact, when I joined, when I got into fintech and I joined MX, um, I asked folks, I said, hey, I want to learn fintech and I want to learn fintech super well. And I want to learn banking super well. I want to know all the ins and outs of what bankers actually care about. And it's like, who do I talk to? They gave me internal names, like talk to the CMO, talk to the chief customer. I was like, no, y'all, like I want someone that really gets it, right? And they gave me a few names that I interacted with folks. But I remember John came to Money Experience Summit and I sat in his talk and I was like, this dude understands banking at a next level. And ever since then, John and I, and I have been great friends. So John, welcome. Feel free to introduce yourself, but I consider you the ultimate banking historian and the person it, that I view knows the most about banking. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Let me introduce Colton Pond. How about that? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Here's the thing about Colton Pond that I respect so immensely. He is this ball of optimism and positivity. And like he is always driving forward. And I love that about him because I'm the same way. And when you're like that, you tend to annoy people. But I don't annoy Colton. And he doesn't annoy me. And so I love that so much. And so I was talking to him not too long ago and just trying to get a sense for like, more like like who he is and like what he was like as a kid and kind of like where what I'm seeing now as an adult, where did that start to come out? And he told me the story of when he when he was young and what were you height your what you kid, Colton, when you're playing when you started playing baseball? Not How old were you? Really poor. I was like seven, eight years old, about my, yeah. my old age. And he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> it turns out. 
but he loved it and he wanted to, he wanted to get good at it. And so he just obsessed over it and obsessed over it. And you ended up even playing in college. Is that right? Yeah. You got a college scholarship. Yeah. He got a college scholarship playing baseball and like, I mean, it's just, it, it, when you, when you study extraordinary people, and I'm not saying Colt Isra is not, I tend to think he is, but that's pretty subjective. Okay. I'm pretty biased. One of the things that you notice is that the seeds of greatness or the seeds of success are so often planted in kind of the manure of life. You know what I mean? And like those who, and those who grow out of that tend to be the, the strongest and the most impressive people. And so that's what I think about when I think about with Colt Pond. They, thank you, John. So I'm going to turn a John Maxwell question around on you. I, I've introduced you to a bunch of people in the fintech ecosystem, and I've realized you ask consistent questions sometimes, but who is the most interesting person that you've ever met? And when I ask, I say, you have to define interesting and then describe what, why it is that th- this person fits that description. I would say that the most interesting person I've met recently is last year I interviewed a Holocaust survivor. I stayed with him. He was in El Paso, Texas. He married into what became a uh, a really prominent family in El Paso. Uh, but he was in Hungary during World War II and he was Jewish. He never actually was gone to a camp, but his grandparents were killed. His, his father died in Auschwitz. And he was 15 years old at the time. And he just the harrowing tales he has to tell about about humanity. And there's one point in particular in that conversation that, that will always stick with me because at some point his family got rounded up and then they shoved into the ghetto. And I asked him, I said, well, like, what's it like to like, what that first moment when they open the gates of the ghetto and like you're put in, like, like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Like, do you know where to go? Do they give you an address? Do they give you like, I don't know, like what, like, what do you do? They're like, like, no, you have to understand, John, like you're applying the rules of society now. When society breaks down, there are no rules. So you're literally living second by second. So it's just everything that comes into your sight is a thing that you're taking into consideration. And it's just, it's just a remarkable conversation. It's so different. It's such a different perspective than I've ever, I've ever personally heard firsthand. Interesting. It, it really outlines how the things that go around us and our perception of what is and isn't important varies based upon the inputs that we take in. And that, I mean, that, that's in everything. It's not just in life like that, but it's, it's even, I'm going to bring it back into banking and lending. I mean, it, it comes back into that. Whatever we're exposed to really shapes the way that we approach and look at things. Here's one of the things that's really, really interesting is that what do you, when you're learning and you're talking about things, the question is, what do you care about? Do you care about truly knowing the truth and truly getting to the bottom of the issues? Or do you just care about spouting the things that everybody else is spouting so you can fit in on some sort of social basis? And what you find is that if you're actually interested in, in learning about the truth, you come to some really interesting conclusions. And one of the inter- most interesting conclusions that you come to is that all these people that do what I do and analyze banks and write about banks and blah, 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 they're obsessed with all these, these numbers, these profitability metrics, efficiency numbers, capital ratios, things like that. And what you realize when you learn all of that stuff is that none of that stuff matters. And ROE, ROA, efficiency ratio, credit, the, credit quality, that none, none of that stuff matters. If you're trying to predict the future success of any type of institution, whether it's a high leverage institution like a bank, whether it's a fintech company, whether it's, a, I don't care, a sporting goods company, you have to understand the leader, the brain that's within that person. And to understand that, you have to understand, because what, you, what you're getting at is the context through which they make decisions. And the way you learn the context in which they make decisions is you dig into their experiences that they've had through their lives. And these are incredibly personal questions. 
And so it's so interesting in this world where there are all of these people who are paid all of this money to understand banks and fintechs and other types of companies, they all spend their time doing stuff that's completely irrelevant. And none of them ask the right questions. So it's just an interesting thing. Well, hopefully this is the right question for you right now. You go extremely deep um, into the banking. Um, I noticed, and, and Colton even pointed this out to me as well, is like when I read it, it's not about what's going on right now. A lot of times you, you reference back to what has happened in the past and how it correlates with what's going on today. I'd really like to understand and, and let the audience understand also, how did John find this love of banking? I would say that I don't necessarily have a love of banking, but I have a passion for learning. And I found myself in a scene where I have l- spent 15 years learning about it in a different way than anybody else that I've ever come across. And that's brought me to a perspective on it that is truly unique and original. And when you get to a point, I've never actually talked about this publicly, <laughs> uh, but when you, uh, when you get to a point to where you are, you, you genuinely understand and appreciate where you fall in terms of the competition, in terms of your knowledge base, and you get a position where you're in somewhat of a lead, it gets intoxicating, to be totally honest with you. And so you just get obsessed with it. But it's, it really is about learning more than banking, I would say. John, one of my favorite things about you is that transition story. At one point in your career, you got a job at a bookstore because you wanted to learn the most you possibly could. And the bookstore was the best place to be able to see what books are coming in and out. And uh, what what was impressed upon me when we first met was you're like, okay, I'm going to figure out banking. I'm going to get every book in banking, newspaper articles from the 1800s. Help us understand the importance of looking back when we think about banking and like the importance of learning from prior history of banking in like today's world. I went to law school, graduated top of my class, had a student clerkship, which is like a really good gig and all this kind of stuff. And then I went back to school to get an LLM. But I realized halfway through getting my LLM that if what in fact was happening, which was I was just avoiding getting a job, and that's the truth, uh, then I should just not have a job. I should not be paying $40,000 a year in tuition and not have a job. Now, on a net-net basis, it took me quite a while to figure it out, but I finally did. So I sold an investment that had been made on my behalf in a bank. And uh, I moved to Washington, D.C. And my plan was to uh, uh, read books until all my money ran out. And that's basically what I did. <laughs> but uh, in the midst of that, I, I uh, the financial crisis hit. And uh, and I was uh, running a bookstore in Washington, D.C., uh, of all places. I decided, oh, I need to know why what ha- what happened here. And so I figured like I, ever since I was five years old, I've gone through my life and I've studied different subject matters, all a variety of different ones, complicated ones, like different, different aspects of physics. There's a variety of things in the kind of religion and philosophy area. And then things like random things, like what it takes to survive as a high altitude mountaineer or what does it take to survive a maritime disaster? Like just like random, like random stuff. And so I figured that, and then what I, what I do is I study that thing and I kind of just saturate the literature and get everything I can. And learn it. And you kind of learn kind of scaffolding of the literature. And you kind of learn how that works. And scaffolding is actually relatively similar as you go from just subject matter to subject matter. So you just kind of like, then you go find the scaffolding and then you work your way up. And then what you're able to do is you're able to reduce that subject matter down to a simple underlying principle that's robust enough to cover anything that happens. And so I was trying that with banking. 
And I thought this would take me like six months. And it was like 12, 13 years later, I was like, I still wasn't able to do that. And I've done that with all those topics. And I was like, what's going on here? So at the beginning of 2022, I said, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give every, basically every waking hour of this year, of the next 365 days to this, to figuring out what I'm missing here. And so I started, I said, I'll allow myself to work 18 hours a day for 365 days in a row. And so what I did is, and I'd give my kids, the only time off I gave myself was one hour a day and I'd play pass with my sons because I have two sons that love to play football. In the midst of that, I, I discovered the, this theoretical flaw that was sitting at this, that's been sitting unknown or un, un, unnoticed in the literature of banking since 1913, which is the year that the Federal Reserve Act was passed. And so when I found that, then it was about like, okay, well, I found the flaw that, that didn't allow me to reduce it in a certain way. So then it was about finding the fix. So then I started and I just read contemporary material starting in 1790, which was the year George Washington was inaugurated all the way through to today. Because trying to understand it from a contemporaneous perspective and get all the knowledge into my head at any one particular point in time. And so that's kind of my story with banking. Right. On, on that note, John, I know today you work with a lot of bank CEOs. And, and in my opinion, the uh, mo- of the most well-run banks in the U.S. Share uh, one or two use cases of uh, banks that have successfully navigated uh, a crisis and how they've done so and some of those really unique stories in banking that you, you've come to find as you interact with these CEOs. Okay, I'll tell you my favorite stories. How about that? Do you want my favorite ones? I want your favorite. There we go. Of course. Okay, so um guy by the name of Ross McKnight, he's like my favorite guy right now. He is so amazing. 15 years old. This is back in the 60s. This would have been 1964. He was... uh he grew up in this tiny town in Texas, Throckmorton, Texas. He's the great grandson of this guy by the name of E.P. Davis. There was a period in the late 1800s after the U.S. military cleared the Comanche, moved the Comanche off the, the off the plains, where there was a land grab in northern Texas, and that's when these huge ranches were were accumulated, like the King Ranch, the Wagner Ranch, like the ones that like you hear about. Well, his grandfather accumulated a ranch too, not the biggest ranch. It wasn't a million acres like the King Ranch, but it was a hundred thousand acres, which as some some coming Still from somebody really. some coming from somebody in a ranching family who's we've owned some big ranches. We ain't never owned a bad ranch that big. Okay, that's a big ranch. So that ranch breaks, it goes down and gets broken down through the generations. And and Ross inherits, well, his dad dies in 1964. Um, and Ross inherits 500 acres outright and then 1,200 acres in the life estate. But what's important to realize about uh, Ross's dad's, dad's death is that uh, his dad was an alcoholic, a big-time player in the Throckmorton area. Ross actually loved his father, was very, very fond of his father. But he was like this, like alcoholic who would go through these, he, would, he was a binge drinker. He'd go periods of sobriety <clears throat> and in two weeks straight of drinking vodka in bed and just being like totally blasted. But his dad was going through one of these periods and, uh, Ross stayed home from school. Ross was 15. He was a sophomore in high school and he stayed home from school to get his dad sober on Thursday and Friday. So he stayed home and I uh, got him sober by Friday afternoon. He was good. So he thought he was safe. So Ross left to go to the Friday night football game. Comes back from a Friday night football game. His dad's drunk again. His mom had given him alcohol. Ross is pissed. Ross goes into his bedroom, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning, comes out. His dad is still intoxicated. He's on the living room floor. He asks Ross to change the living, the channel on the TV. Ross tells him, change the channel yourself. He'll drunk, walks out the door and goes dove hunting. 
uh, someone comes back 15 minutes later and tells him his dad died. His last words to his father. I don't know if you've lost your parents, Ted, but I'm going to tell you something right now. If you have, you know exactly what I'm saying. Those words mean a lot to you and they will live with you the rest of your life. And so whatever you do, make sure you say the, say the right ones. Okay, that's just some personal advice. If you haven't already gone through that yourself, and if you have, my condolences. But no, um, I'm not yet. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, 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 thank, thank every day. Yeah. And so, uh, is, so he, Ross is devastated. Uh, and to make matters worse, his mom leaves a week later, abandons him. <laughs> so leaves this 15 year old kid with nothing. You know what I mean? And, uh, so I was digging around, learning about Ross because he runs literally the top foreign bank in the country right now, like by a long shot. I was digging around a newspaper article clippings from him, like back in like when he was in high school and stuff like that. It turns out when he graduated high school, despite having no parents to raise him after the age of 15, he was selected as the most likely to succeed in his high school class. And then he goes on to OHSU and does all this stuff, becomes friend of T.B. Pickens and all this stuff and goes back to his little, what the 500 acres that he inherited. And lo and behold, if that 500 acres isn't sitting right on top of that North, North Texas oil fields, right in the middle of that thing. And so when that thing was discovered, and then in 1973, there was an energy crisis caused by the Yonkapur War. And once that hit, energy prices skyrocketed, so he made a ton of money. So he then makes all this money. He then rebuilds the ranch that his grandfather had broken up on all these different pieces, rebuilds the whole thing, and also buys a large portion of the King Ranch, which at that point is right next door. So he's done that. So he's become this oil magnet, this ranching magnet. Then he buys this bank that fails in 1988. He buys it for $5,000. Uh, oh, wow. He owns, it had $13.9 million in assets at the time. Today it has $4.2 billion in assets. And Ross owns 75% of that thing. That's a lot of money. That's <laughs> crazy. And so that's, that's who this guy is. And so at the end of the conversation, I said, Ross, I said, uh, <clears throat> well, I bet you weren't expecting to talk about that. You know, I said, here's why. I explained to him why I, why I, I talked about these things and there's a lot to it, but I said, you know, what do you think about that theory that I think that there is a, a, I think that there is a strong correlation between somebody experiencing tragic hardship early in life and incredible success later in life, particularly in the banking industry because of a number of peculiar characteristics. He said, let me tell you a story. Because I love Broadway. He's, he is also on the New York Philharmonic board of directors. He said, I love Broadway. I've been to over 600 plays. I go to every single one that opens on Broadway. You've got two sweet planes. And, uh, and, uh, he says, uh, but my favorite is chess. And he said, it wasn't very popular. It was in the eighties. It was about kind of that chess match becomes set in the chess matches mm-hmm. in the cold war between the Russia, Soviet Union and the United States. And it's basically a story of Bobby Fisher. Well, Bobby Fisher also had a challenged relationship with his mother. And so he says about halfway through the musical, there's a song called Pity the Child. And uh, basically the point of the song is that, you know, pity the child because the child never got to know the love of a mother. And he says, but then it transitions about halfway through that song into, no, 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 not pity the child, pity the mother, for the mother never knew the purity of the love of the child. He said at that moment, this is a billionaire. Okay. He's a billionaire. He's a big time player. Okay. He says at that moment, I just started weeping in the front row because I realized that my entire life had been spent trying to prove I was worthy of my mother's love. That's the thing that drove him. And so anybody who looks at that bank and doesn't understand that doesn't have a clue what they're looking at. That's one of my stories. I won't give you any more. They're really long. 
No, I, I, lo- I love that level of depth that you you dive into because it, it does, like we were talking about the perception, it really does give you a different way to look at it, a different way to understand the decision making. It's always about the story behind the story when you when you start diving into those types of things. The problem is that like to do to do this kind of stuff, you know, they talk a lot about like um People talk a lot about success and where success comes from and what sacrifice you have you to have make for success. And so the question is, well, what do you mean by sacrifice? Like, you want to be the best? What do you mean by success? What do you mean by success? Well, what is it? What sacrifice does it take? And are you willing to do it? You want, you want to know the truth? There are very, very few people who are willing to make the sacrifices it takes to be successful. That's the truth right there. Because it... It takes a toll on your family. It takes a toll on your life. You don't have a social life. You don't have friendships. I don't have a single friend in the city I live in. <laughs> no <laughs> joke. Like John, and then we can hang I, out. Yeah, then Carlton. Like it, it to, to 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 do this at the level that I do it. Like it, it just like it. The sacrifice is large, and it's actually something that I never planned on talking about this topic, but it's something that like. I've started to think about like what is yeah. worth it, what is not worth it. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. That's interesting. You bring up the, the close friend living close to you. I, I too fall in that same scenario. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I mean, it's really, it really focuses in on diving into learning uh, about all these different things. And that's, that's where my focus goes. When I found the Ten Commandments of banking uh, that you wrote, you know, I started looking through it, and some of the quotes and the way that it was laid out really made me think about how banking has has evolved um, over time, and and how our perception of what is good, what should be done, and who to serve has changed, at least from my perspective. It, it looks like it's changed a lot. Do you know who Bank of America was founded for? Founded by a guy named A.P. Giannini. A.P. Giannini was an Italian immigrant who came over with his parents. He goes to the door one day. He is, how old was he? I think he was six. Goes to the door one day. His dad is a farmer. Goes to the door one day. Somebody is knocking on the door. Opens the door. It's a farmhand that's pissed off because he thinks... A.P. Giannini's dad owes him a dollar, and A.P. Giannini's dad does not think he owes him a dollar. The guy pulls out a shotgun and shoots H.P. Giannini's dad right in the face, right in front of him. <laughs> Dies instantly, as you can imagine. That is the context in which this kid grew up. He then goes, his dad was a su- successful farmer. He sat on the board of a bank. I can't remember the name. It was probably Union Bank or something like that in San Francisco. And uh, A.P. Giannini goes to this he goes to the board. He says, we need to be serving the Italian. We need to be serving immigrants. Why are we not serving immigrants? And they're like, basically, these people are below us. Say, PG&E is like, you know what? I got a better idea. I'm going to start my own bank. And they went Bank of Italy. And two years later, basically, I'm going to change it. He didn't know this at the time. But two years later, I'm going to change the Bank of America. And by the time I die in 1949, it, granted, it won't be the, top, the biggest bank in the United States, but it will be the biggest bank in the world. And so he built that bank. That bank is a bank that was based on a retail franchise. If you go back to the very beginning of this country when savings banks, which were the first depository institutions in the country, were founded, these things were founded to help people, to help people. 
And they were all along the way, if you actually read through history and you read about what was going on at the time, as opposed to just following headlines and like talking points and fintech. And like, I'm all about fintech because I love Colton Pond and I will do anything to make that kid successful. I believe in him so much. Okay. There is a problem in the fintech language and a fintech knowledge base about what they're talking about. People are going to go around and say that banks didn't know how to serve customers or any of that kind of stuff. And that they're going to tell these bankers who've committed their lives to this stuff that they don't know what they're doing, that they're uninnovative. It's absurd. The oldest bank in this country was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Name one fintech company that was founded <laughs> 230 years ago. The one point is that if we have, we are together in this. We are in the same ecosystem. Yes. Okay. So we all have to act responsibly. You guys, what you do is so critically important to moving the industry forward, but you don't have to put other people down to raise yourself up. We can all raise these, our, our, ourselves up together. Pending to that, if we think about some of these principles that were early days, like founding of Bank of America and others and serving uh, the communities, and I know community banks today are like hyper-focused on how do we serve the community. Um, what role do you think and then we have fintech over here saying, hey, I'm being innovative. What role does technology play? Like if we think about what role technology plays in driving growth or profitability or impact that banks can have, what's your perspective there? Here's a quick message from the Accrued Series sponsor. As default rates continue to rise and margins compress in lending, financial organizations are searching for solutions to combine that operational efficiency with innovation. Look no further as LoanPro allows lenders to enhance their origination, servicing, collections, and payments using the foundation of a modern lending core. Check out LoanPro.io to learn more about how over 600 financial organizations have modernized their tech stack with LoanPro. Okay, so I'm going to say something that's going to sound cliche, but I there's actually substance behind when I say it. Okay, and that is that like without technology, banks will not survive. Margins have been coming down over decades. Okay, you've got to find some way if you want to continue on as a financial institution, you've got to find some way to save costs somewhere because you're getting squeezed on the top line. So technology is incredibly important. But it's also incredibly important from the perspective of not just from the the, the the dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but it's also important because like the consumer nowadays expects a certain experience. And if you go to a bank and they're giving you a dramatically different experience, like that is just not, that is not good. Like loan, like loan originations and stuff like that. If it takes you three weeks to originate a loan for a small business or something like that, like you're just not long for this world because there's other people who figured out how to do it in like three seconds. So that's, that's the role that it plays. Yeah. And without talking too much about numbers, if we look at some of the growth that SoFi has had, I, I looked at some of the numbers, they tripled deposits in the past year. They weren't big. They went from 5 billion to 15 billion, but like that growth and they've done it through matching a, a digital experience a consumer would expect it like that they get with Amazon or Netflix or Spotify. And like, how do you match that digital experience? How do you drive increased personalization? Because Banks, in the end, have the most data to drive the most personalization possible. One of the peculiar characteristics of this of this field is that you can grow really fast. And so, like, if you can do that responsibly, the, ch the challenge is growing really fast in a responsible way. If you can use technology to simplify what you're doing so you can focus on the things that matter in the risk realm, like, that, that is incredibly beneficial. And that's, like, one of the biggest benefits, like, artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff is that 
it'll allow these bankers to focus on the things that that really, really matter. John, I love your thoughts on how banks do so in a compliant way. Like, how do you match growth, technology, innovation with compliance and marry those two together? What's the balance? Because at times they can be at odds each other. They don't need to be, but what are how do you do that? What are some examples of how you've seen that happen? How do the best banks do that? Um, I, I don't know if there's a, there's a formula. It all stems from the leader. Like, is the leader genuinely, like, genuinely interested in furthering the interest of this entity as opposed to his or her own monetary interest? If they are, and they are sufficiently intelligent and knowledgeable in the field, you can run an incredibly successful bank. But in order to do that, like if there's one lesson we learned from signatures failure, it is that you better be friends with your regulators. Cause like <laughs> they can get really messy, real messy, real quick. If you're, a, if you're, if you're locking horns with them. And that's, that's the lesson for signature bank. So always. And the other thing is that compliance has a tendency to have like a negative connotation in banking. And so when bankers say this, it's like my response to them is like my response to fintech people who say that banks didn't know what they were doing, that they don't know how to innovate and stuff like that. I'm like, clown, like put this clown hat on and go to the circus. You know what I mean? Like get out of here. You know what I mean? Um, but like it, it, it's, it's kind of like, uh, oh God, I just like totally lost my train of thought. I was thinking about a clown car in my head. I was like literally envisioning it. I was literally envisioning it. And I was like, was it going to turn oh. right or is it going to turn left? <laughs> now we know who the real clown is. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> oh. but, but, to your point, um, yeah. I think that the, the balance is, and, and this is my strong perspective and why we get along so well is, Fintechs and banks working jointly together, not putting one another down, but working jointly together to drive the greater good. And like this series, this podcast series we're doing with Ted is around Lentech and, and Loan Pros focus on Lentech and driving innovation there, but it can be done together. Uh, and you can bring, marry the best in banking and, and the best philosophies in banking with the best technology. And we've seen several examples where banks have successfully responsibly, I like how you said responsibly grown in the right way. Because we've seen other examples of like that chart behind you right there, uh, right above your shoulder. Up and down, right? right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I'm not, okay. So anybody who's listening to this, I'm not saying this because like Colton Pond and like Loan Pro saw me to pay. They are not paying me a cent to say anything. Okay. Colton (laughs) asked me to come on and we're friends. So I just came on. It all reduces to, again, the leader. So you you look at like Rhett. So the CEO of Loan Pro. Rhett is this amazing guy. He's got these three brothers and they've done this amazing stuff. Like they're coming down to this conference I'm hosting. Rhett's going to get up on stage. We're going to talk about the work that they've done in Cambodia. I mean, it's just like, it, it, it's all about assessing the individual that's running these institutions. And the only way you got to go, you got to look them in the eye, you got to meet him, you got to talk to him about the, you know what I mean? And so it's like, yeah. And then that's why Colton, it works so well with you. And that's why like, yeah, I think your, your company is so successful because Rhett is very similar. Agreed. The direction I was headed is very similar to, to the idea about the FinTech saying that they, that they're fixing everything. And that's kind of where I was going with the 10 commandments of banking is there are a lot of things in there that if the fintechs were looking at that and if they were approaching it from that perspective, a lot of the things that we've seen with with banks, with the regulators, and a lot of other areas, from my perspective, would be less frequent than what we've seen recently. 
And my question for you is, which one of those 10 commandments do you think is being broke, broken the most frequently? And how do you see that impacting banking and fintech long-term? Uh, chasing for yield. Chasing for yield is a perennial problem in banking. It's you were to like, you know, do a pie chart of what has killed the most banks over the years. It's chasing for yield would be a con- strong, it'd be a strong contender. Uh, and so that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is to a certain extent, which happened with all those banks. And so it's like, yeah, that's, that's the thing that gets them. How do you maintain the perspective where you're not seeking for yield? And how does technology aid in that? You, you know, the thing about chasing for yield, it's all behavioral is what it is. It's all behavioral because what, what you see is that at the top of a cycle, everybody's growing fast. Everybody's making a ton of money. They're doing, and then they start to think, ah, there's no risk in the horizon. Let's do this and that. Let's make these exceptions. And so it looks like you're taking no risk. And so you're increasing your earnings. So you're increasing your, your own compensation. But the reality is that what you're doing is you're trading future earnings for current earnings. Yeah. It's because what you're doing is then you're making bad loans and then those loans go bad. Or you're chasing for yield in your securities portfolio when interest rates are basically zero and you buy $70 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities and then you get hung out to dry by your customers. Like, yeah, I mean, like the way to stop that is it's behavioral. It's, the, it's knowledge. It's learning. It's having systems that teach these people that these cycles are real. These are what the cycles look like. The cycles are not gone. They're with us for indefinitely. We got to assume that. And so it's, it's really about just beating that in. You know, I've thought a lot over the years, is it nature or nurture for yeah. bankers? Because the behavioral stuff are so unusual, what it takes to run one of these institutions that like, I don't know the answer to it, but um, certainly it, the more they learn, the better. So on that note, I, I love to transition and ask kind of a cliche, cliche question, uh, John, but uh, it's something I feel like a lot of people are thinking about, and you actually have the strongest ability to answer this because you understand banking all the way from the 1700s in the U.S. Um, help us understand what the future of banking actually looks like, both from the number of banks, from compliance, from technology, and like, what will the next 30, 50 years look like? And what do banks need to do today to be successful for the, prepare for those next, next coming years? Well, it's hard pressed to see a future where you have a lot of branches around. And when you really go out 10, 20 years, like, I mean, everybody's going to be, everything's going to be digital. So, you know, that, that's the case. And the thing to understand about banking is that the, the digital versus physical, that all we're talking about is distribution. That's all we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you go back to like distribution has always been evolving. It's just the case. Like you had, you know, like Wells Fargo. You know what I mean? You had like, well, you had like a bank that just like put up like some flag, like some like clapboard, you know what I mean? Because the train station was going to be put there. You know what I mean? So then you have that bank. And then you have like, well, no, we need like a stagecoach. Then you have Wells Fargo, right? Just like turns them all around. You know what I mean? Right. And then you're like, no, no, like, why don't we like, let's have cars. Like, no, we're going to have cars now. So like, well, let's park the cars in the parking. No, no, let's actually like put, let's knock a hole out in the wall. And then we'll give the stuff out that yeah, hole. Here, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh no, like no, they just, now there's these flip, there's this internet thing. What's this internet thing? I don't know what this internet thing is. Like, let's maybe like let people like log into like our website. I don't know. Like, let's check that out. Like, what's this phone? Oh, that's a pretty cool phone. You know what I mean? Like, what can we do with that? Oh, there's an app. What is that? You know what I mean? Like, all yeah, we're true. all we're ta- all we're talking right now is a teeny, 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 tiny portion of banking. The big stuff, the stuff that matters, and this is what fintech people have no clue about, 
is that a bank, if it, a bank's margin for error is all these, all these people who run around, it's like, oh, banks are so I'm slow to move and stuff like that. And I'm like, have you ever sat and actually thought and used the brain that God or our creator or whatever this thing is gave you to like try to empathize with why they may move slow? Have you ever thought about that for even one second? The answer is no. And even if they did, it'd take a lot more than one second for them to get to the right place. But here's the right answer. When Washington Mutual became the biggest bank failure in the history of the United States, do you know what their lawn performing loan ratio was? That's an unfair question. It was three and a half percent. Okay. Oh, that means that they got a 96 and a half percent on their test and they weren't given a B. They were given an F. A 96 and a half percent on their test. And they, yeah. the FDIC walked into the front doors of their skyscraper and took that damn thing for itself. Oh, That's yeah. how slim the margins for error. So when people are going around, move fast and break things, you start throwing that kind of stuff around in a bank, you're going to break it next week. It's going to be gone. And then you're not going to be responsible for it because it's going to be the shareholders responsible for it. It's not the little fintech person. You know what I mean? It's like, like that's why banks move like that. And we don't want banks moving fast and breaking things because you know what they would break? They'd break the U.S. economy. Yeah. They would break the U.S. economy. Okay. And that's why I say if any fintech people listen to this, I am in your camp. You guys are doing important work that the banking industry needs to survive, to be more humble about the words and opinions that you use and share. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot more that you don't know about than that you do. You know what I mean? And we're, that's true for all of us, me it, included. It's, it's balancing the risk, the innovation, the compliance arm, and all of those aspects together that generally, if you look in a, with your blinders on, you're just like, oh, just innovate. We do it all the time. Just like, tweak this or do this, but you're spot on. Like gaining that perspective helps shape the industry for what's next. Honestly, like increased collaboration among technology and banking and what that looks like. I think the piece that I've, I've recognized over probably over the last couple of years, more so than anything, because John, as you were talking about fintechs for a very, very long time, and even some today, a lot today, actually, um, talk about how they're going to be the next bank or they're going to be a better bank or they're going to be better in that space. I, I was just yesterday with a, a company that's a banking as a service company and listening to them talk about how, how they've built that out. And it, it made me a little uncomfortable, to be honest, because I look at that and they aren't fixing anything. It feels like they're just extending the risk model out into the marketplace without understanding how they're going to be able to support and and that bank's goals. And I guess where I was going with that is how would you express or describe the way a fintech should be looking at augmenting versus overtaking the bankings, the banks and the financial institutions in our great country? I would say that um, two things and draw a chart <laughs> a graphic. I love uh, it. Two things. First, humility. And I get the humility from the fact that this, this is what bankers have to think about. That big, that big circle. This is what fintech people typically, most fintech companies have to think about. Yeah. Okay. So like, there's a lot. There's a lot going on that you don't know. So be humble. Be humble. 
The other thing is that, um, I like anybody who thinks that we're going through a tech revolution right now is like whack out of their brain. Like that is, we are not going through any sort of revolution. In fact, Ted, I'm sure this will come as a surprise to you because most people don't say these types of things, but, uh, things are moving slower right now than they ever have before. I couldn't agree more. Yes, and maybe I slower than they more. ever have before. Okay. And so it's like all these people going around like, oh, we're going through a revolution and they're doing that to scare banks and they're making bad decisions. And these people like have no margin for error and they're trying to be scared to do something. Like it's just like that's, that's, that, that's a point. And the other point is that like everything these, everything that everybody's saying today that they think is so new and hip and innovative. Let me tell you something right now. It's been said about five or 10 times before in the past. Okay. It's all these things have been said before. All the cliches that are being said right now, you go back in time and you see it over and over and over again. And all, and every time they think they're being new and original. Digital transformation hasn't been talked about before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the talk about for a hundred years, a hundred years. You know what I mean? The radio came out. I mean, like they were like connecting things with telegraphs. They're telegraphs. You know what I mean? And banks were the first entities with telegraphs typically. Oh, uh, that's, that's one of the, the takeaways for me, uh, in this conversation that's been awesome, by the way, has been the evolution over time. It's not like, Hey, we're coming in. We're doing something. No, this has been done a long time. Like. We've been on this journey and I, the cohesion that needs to happen among bank and fintech partnership is an understanding of one another of how the actual business works and how it actually has an impact, uh, relative to, uh, just thinking very narrowly in a, in a small scope. Let me, let me, let me, let, let me draw a finer point to this. So it's like when I was in, uh, when I was in, uh, in high school, I worked at a restaurant as a, dishwasher okay and uh, it wasn't very glamorous uh (laughs) even though it's even though it sounds really glamorous um and i went in and i was like tell the dishwasher like what do you do why are you doing like that like that's so inefficient all this kind of stuff and like like then i'm doing it for like a couple months and i ended up doing just like him i'm like oh there's a a reason they do it like that do you know what i mean (laughs) and so what i would say to to all the all the fintech folks is that before you start going around drawing a bunch of conclusions, try to yeah. figure out like why things are the way they are. And then the last thing is that like be a decent human being. Yep. Be there for others, not for yourself. If you're there for others and not for yourself, there is no limit to the success that you can have. And that's, and I don't want to beat this drum because Colton Pond is on here and we're my friends, but that is why I'm friends with Colton Pond because that's how he operates too. So. John, thank you. By the way, um, if we go back to our past episode, we actually had Rhett come on and, and talk about mm-hmm. things. Rhett's big belief, uh, there was a book by the former founder, or the founder of Visa, and he talks about, and I think he gave you the book actually when, when you were there, uh, the way it ought to be. Build it the way it ought to be. So there are answers to your point where when you ask, why is this the way it is? People give the answer of, oh, that's just how it's been. That's how so-and-so told me to do it. And that's not a good answer. What is a good answer is, oh, it's this and this and this, and it's tied back to this. But the answer is, oh, it's just how we've done it forever. And I, I don't know. That's where the innovation is. That's where you need to say, is there a way to rethink this to change it and to make it better and improve, increase efficiency, increase distribution, increase whatever the metric is, right? 
Agree, hundred percent. Endorsed. Now we're like and share, like and share. (laughs) The last thing that it kind of ties into what what you were we were just talking about is looking at the why things have been done for so long and and how to look at them differently. It feels like there's a lot of talk about getting hyper personal um, in in financial services, actually just about everything, whether it be retail or financial services, getting it down to that super hyper personalized piece of it. How, from your perspective, how do you see banks and just financial institutions being able to embrace, which they have been, but how do they accelerate that or deliver more personalized services to their to their customers? The problem with the question is it supposes something that isn't true. They've always been interested in it. They've always been pushing for it. They've been doing it since well before our great grandma, great grandpas and great great granddaddies and great grandmommies were alive. They've been doing it since the beginning. Like you can go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. And what were they doing? They were doing things like giving separate rooms for like, because remember the social mores were very different, but the women started to integrate into society, into more of the outside, the house type of society at the time. So what the banks then, then did, they wanted to cater to that. They wanted to serve these people. They wanted to support that movement in society. So they created separate rooms for them in their, in their banks, separate little like teller rooms for them in their banks. Um, I mean, you can go through, then like there were merchants that were, that would be busy and transacting work at night. So what did the banks do? So then there was a wave of banks in the 1920s that were 24, open 24 hours a day. Now that didn't work very well because there aren't a lot of customers. You know, you can imagine who's out at night who wants to deal with the bank. You know what I mean? It's not somebody who wants to give you money. It wants to take some, you know? I might want to take some, yeah. But the point being is that like, I mean, you go all the way back and like, they have always, 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 always been focused on the customer. Always. A long time before it became popular for people in fintech to say that they weren't. Hundreds of years before that is when they got interested in the customer. <laughs> Back on the bridge in Florence, Italy, they were interested in the customer. Because in banking, the thing that determines the success or failure of not only a bank, but the industry overall is the confidence of the consumer. If you lose the confidence, you lose your bank. And it's always been the case and it's never going to change. It's a, a really fine uh, concluding point on like the, the future of your bank revolves on, on the customer or the confidence of, of your customer, right? We look at Silicon Valley Bank and what happened, like mm-hmm. confidence was like gone at everyone. I had so many friends. In a matter of hours. matter of hours. I, I was actually at dinner when they shut down. You couldn't pull any more funds with a fintech founder. And he was stressed out of his mind. He was like, I'm not be able to pay my employee, right? But it happened so quickly. It was like, hey, confidence of your customer is gone. They don't believe that you're actually going to be around. You're out, right? And in banking is so different than other industries in that way because it can happen so fast. Like that graph right there, it can happen so fast. And one day things are great. The next day things are really bad, which highlights once again the importance of Banks move methodically for a reason because uh, they need to balance innovation with risk and compliance together. And it's not just a view on innovation. Yeah, well said. 
And John, that that was intentionally asked that way. I know. <laughs> I just I asked out in the beginning. You could say, look, you could say, you know, I'm just trying to see, you know, I'm just trying to test it out. I yeah, know. Yeah, no, I asked that intentionally because because of the the call, you know, the, the commentary that we had at the beginning when we started talking about the Ten Commandments. That has been a lot of it. I mean, I even think about like the credit union perspective, which is which is I, I feel even a little bit stronger versus traditional banks towards their members, right? And that 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 was intentionally. So I kind of teed that one up to see yeah. if you can knock one out. And you, yeah, you did credit, awesome. Credit, credit unions can do a lot when you don't got to pay taxes. You can do a lot <laughs> more, my friend. Do not ever forget that there is a difference. That there is a correlation between margin and level of service. Oh, and sure. when you when when you got a fifteen to twenty percent head start. Yeah, it's a little bit different scenario. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> it changes things a little bit. Yeah, it changes things. Yeah, we've talked about a bunch of stuff today. Um, you've given some great insights. I love this, the depth of the stories that you've brought. Um, things that, uh, and you've actually uh, honestly inspired me to continue to dig a little bit deeper. Before we we say goodbye to everybody, you know, I'd love to get your final thoughts on. What you believe? I mean, you've talked about the fintechs, learning more. What final thoughts do you have, like that, will inspire the listeners to to dive deeper down into this history so they can understand the future in banking? Yeah. Um, first of all, Beard all, if you're watching this, I'm gonna beat your that's a really good point Red beard all needs to come on the next episode now He's yeah yeah get him on the show on the episode if you need my help you let me know i'll get him on here for you doesn't that no problem but yeah i don't think you do you can get him yourself yeah with this and say i was on a podcast with colton he's gonna reach out you have to be on the next episode because your name was brought up several times for calling me yeah i will i will okay uh so let me leave you with the last thought. So, uh, Ted, Ted, do you have a uh, a subscription to Ancestry.com? I do not, actually. Okay, you should get it. Do you want to know where I do almost all my due diligence? Now I just revealed it. So it's Ancestry.com. <laughs> yeah. Could it be Ancestry.com? Ancestry. Yeah, what could it possibly be? Like, is this a trick question? It's not Ancestry. <laughs> Dad, I got you. You know. <laughs> um, I, I, I am ancestry.com and newspapers.com are where I spend when I'm doing due diligence nowadays on an individual, on, on a bank. Cause it takes me, I can go through the numbers so quick that like that doesn't take me any time. I'll spend, I spent hours, sometimes days. I've spent weeks. I've spent months studying, uh, the, the, the genealogy of certain bankers. And, uh, wow. it's, it, that, that is, that is a secret sauce that if you want to understand what you're talking about and who you're talking to, go to get an ancestry.com, newspapers.com subscription. It's, I, they should pay me seriously. Um, <laughs> and go there and like dig into their family history. What did their great grandfather do? What did their grandfather do? What was, were their divorces? Were their tragedies? You know what I mean? Like that's, that is a gold mine that very, very few people have realized in, in our, in our business. Wow, that's awesome. Colton, anything that you want to make sure that we we cover today that maybe we haven't? Nothing more. I feel like that that last note that we mentioned kind of put the the stamp on the envelope of how do we actually work together in a, in a responsible way? How do we understand each other? How does technology help uh, advance things uh, moving forward in the holistic picture? So 
John, as, as a friend, man, I, I appreciate you. Uh, John is doing some awesome stuff, or some revolutionary stuff, looking at banking in a different way. And, and so you'll see more from John and Maxfield on banks for sure. Um, but no, it's always... Um, Colin Pond and I are going to have our own planes here in a couple of years. That's, that's the goal. That's the goal. That just, the question is, is Colin Biner for me or Ryan Biner for him? Buy <laughs> each other one. We'll split it. Yeah, we, we just yeah. Try, yeah. All right, guys. Oh. So it's good to meet you, Ted. That was a, that was a pleasure. Well, John, I, I appreciate you, you being on today and diving into it. I, of course, appreciate Colton and the Loan Pro team from supporting us. As we wrap up today's episode, I've got one last thing for you. If you're in the trenches fighting fraud and financial crime, you know it's a complex battlefield. That's where Hawk's AI tools for real-time payment screening, AML, transaction monitoring, and dynamic customer risk rating come into play. These aren't just buzzwords, they're game changers designed to make your compliance more effective and less of a headache. Imagine slashing through false positives with precision and giving your compliance strategy the edge it needs. Head on over to gethawkai.com to sign up for a demo and discover how their platform can revolutionize how you fight fraud and financial crime. This has been a production of DD3 Media with all rights reserved. This is provided for informational purposes only. It is not offered or intended to be used as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. We strive to provide accurate and up-to-date information, but will not be responsible for any missing facts or inaccurate information. You comply and understand that you should use any of this information at your own risk. Cryptocurrencies are highly volatile financial assets, so research and make your own financial decisions.